0: He e tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
1: this is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we hear about on-air invitations for the Prime Minister falling on deaf ears, and fighting misinformation by taking
2: the mickey. I mean, that's not proven. There's some references in there. No, there's literally no references. Oh, I forgot. You can't just say, oh, I forgot. Why well, no? It's Guy Williams, self styled
1: volunteer journalist who found himself at the nexus of comedy and real current affairs in the race for the Auckland mayoralty.
2: Woke well, we have monopolised the media for quite some time now. We're but they big... haven't, though. Like Donald Trump was the president, Boris Johnson of talking? The Prime who's, a pr- who's the director here? Are you the director, of Matt? Let's get a talking stick or something.
1: First, the legislation for our new public media entity is now before Parliament, but the clock's ticking on public input. This week, media executives, experts and some legal eagles met to cast their eye over it, and they want changes. But which ones, and what for?
0: This isn't normal. Or rather, it shouldn't be. Things that for many decades were givens the checks and balances on the executive, the role of the judiciary or the civil service or the electoral commission, a media free from interference or vilification, now appear vulnerable. We're seeing politicians move in directions that are deeply and clearly deleterious to basic democratic governments.
1: That's Emily Maitlis, until recently the host of the BBC's flagship daily TV news show, Newsnight. And there she was delivering the McTaggart Lecture this week in Edinburgh. And it's an annual media industry address in which notable media figures assess the state of the media in the UK and the wider world. And she said that a whole host of things had gone wrong there with British democracy under the chaotic recent rule of the Conservative Party, including for the media. And she was specific about political pressure upon the BBC.
0: Put this in the context of the BBC board, where another active agent of the Conservative Party, a former Downing Street spin doctor and former advisor to BBC rival GB News now sits, acting as the arbiter of BBC impartiality. According to the Financial Times, he's attempted to block the appointment of journalists he considers damaging to government relations provoking Labour's deputy leader, among others, to call it Tory cronyism at the heart of the BBC,
1: Emily Maitlis went on to say she'd been censured by the BBC herself for one broadcast that was critical of the Prime Minister's communications director and that had the sole goal, she said, of appeasing the under-pressure government. And she said more about undue pressure on the UK's public broadcaster, including reviews that were launched of the BBC's operations just for political purposes. Now obviously there's a lot going on there in the UK with the media caught in the middle. But here in New Zealand, public broadcasting is also being reviewed in a pretty fundamental way. Legislation is now before Parliament to replace RNZ and TVNZ with a new public media entity in just seven months' time, raising concerns about exactly what it will do and who will have control over it. And with that in mind, Stuff This Week reported a poll of its own readers had suggested about twice as many people oppose the merger of RNZ and TVNZ as support it. We can't say how many people were actually against it. That Stuff report didn't tell Stuff readers how many of them had cast a vote in that poll and the self-selecting nature of the sample makes the result entirely unscientific anyway and not really all that newsworthy. But Stuff did report the Minister of Broadcasting's
3: response. It doesn't worry me. I think we've got a bit of work to do and once we start showing how this entity can work, I think that might change.
1: It was at the start of this year that the government finally confirmed it wanted to create and fund a new public media entity to begin next year. RNZ and TVNZ will become subsidiaries of it just seven months from now, operating with a new charter setting out its public service obligations. In mid-May, Budget 2022 revealed just how much the government would put into it up until 2026. and At that time, former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said the devil would be in the details that still weren't clear and back then he warned too many
4: ministries were involved in it too i have no idea what the structure of this entity is going to be like this entity will be monitored by more state agencies than ever before there are at least four and as many as six that will have some form of oversight into what it's doing if we don't Do something to ensure the absolute independence of this entity from any forms of government control over and above annual appropriations of funding for public good uh, then it will not gain the trust of the public.
1: Now the following month the shape of the new entity was set out in the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill and at a subsequent select committee hearing, National Party Broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee also claimed that setting it up as an autonomous crown entity would make it too vulnerable to ministerial influence and direction. But on Media Watch soon after, the media and broadcasting minister Willie Jackson said Gavin Ellis and others need not worry about
3: interference. But he's got all this scepticism about, you know, independence, and uh, I think that once you get your board in place, they'll work it all out. It's the establishment board also will work will work things out. This nonsense about us wanting to direct and manage everything, as Gavin is trying to say, because we've what did what did he say yesterday? Uh, something about. Um, or why do not they send it up as an independent entity, right? Do you really think that, I'll oh, or the, the government will be managing interviews or trying to change uh, the, the, the stuff? Yes, we've, it's already covered in the Broadcasting Act in terms of editorial independence, and we'll strengthen that up, no doubt, because editorial independence is everything. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to have me there or other ministers trying to guide everyone through. And this aut- autonomous... Um, entity is, is something that's already in place with Tamango with Paho, with with um, Whiri, with New Zealand On Air. You know, it, it doesn't stop anyone from criticising or doing what they want as they should do.
1: That was the Broadcasting and Media Minister, Willie Jackson, on Media Watch back in June. Now this week, Stuff also quoted Willie Jackson as saying the select committee process would give people opportunity plus to have their say. But right now, you've got less than a fortnight to do it in writing. The Economic Development, Science and Innovation Select Committee is taking submissions only up to the 8th of September. Now, one outfit that's putting a lot of effort into its submission is Kuitu, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, led by former Prime Minister's Science Advisor Sir Peter Gluckman and Gavin Ellis, who's an affiliate of the Centre. At a workshop this week, they gathered around 30 media executives, experts and lawyers to scrutinise the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill. They heard from the chief executives of the state-owned outlets which will cease to exist, Simon Power of TVNZ and RNZ's boss Paul Thompson. And they heard independent opinions on the legislation from two overseas experts as well. And one of those was Dr Dennis Muller, who grew up here, but became a journalist and editor overseas at papers including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age in Melbourne and The Times in London. Now he's a senior research fellow at the Center for Advancing Journalism in Melbourne with a weekly slot on ABC Radio called Behind the Media. And when the government first signaled a new public media entity blending commercial TV and public service, Dr. Muller told MediaWatch this.
5: The old days of silos of of thinking of digital radio, television and print. As separate are over. There would certainly be concerns about the effect of merging a non commercial with a commercial organization, but It's not an insuperable problem, in my view, because newspapers, good newspapers, have been doing this for decades, Uh, separating the commercial side of the operation from the editorial side at the Asian Sydney Morning Herald, where I worked for 23 years, had an extremely strict editorial culture, myself included. The journalists were extremely prickly about it, and it had strong editorial leadership. So I don't think it's an insuperable problem. But certainly you need to go into that with your eyes open to make sure that you were protecting the integrity of both the news service and the programme content.
1: That was Dennis Muller talking on Media Watch two and a half years ago. Now via video from Melbourne this week, he told that two workshop in Auckland that the Aotearoa New Zealand public media legislation didn't adequately safeguard editorial freedom. And he told me afterwards, recent experience in Australia showed that that mattered.
6: The Charter requires this new entity to demonstrate that it's editorially independent, but uh, there's no protection in the Charter or anywhere else in the legislation that I could see, no protection from government retaliation in meeting its editorial independence objectives, it reports in a way which displeases the government. We've certainly seen it happen in the United Kingdom. And I have personally, and up close, seen it happening here in Australia, where politicians are very much antagonistic towards public broadcasting. And I think that if there's going to be a change of this kind that's uh, proposed in New Zealand, it's an opportunity to shore up the independence of public broadcasting, the legislation as drafted, weakens it, because the existing charter of Radio New Zealand is actually much stronger.
1: Well, When you say retaliation, Dennis, do you mean that if the government, uh, or rather the scrutiny of the government by this new public media entity is strong, uh, they will try and prevent uh, this entity from working in the public interest and in reporting properly? Or, or do you mean uh, it's vulnerable in terms of funding? Its lifeblood could be cut if it displeases the government and that, that uh, this legislation makes it vulnerable to in the form that it is now?
6: I think both. There's a problem that uh, a government that was minded to interfere with the public broadcaster in New Zealand could easily do so uh, in this current framework. Once again, I've And drawing on my Australian experience here. We have seen the funding to the ABC cut in real terms since 2014. And that's largely because the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments were hostile to the ABC. And the third way in which the uh, Australian government at least has used pressure to uh, retaliate against the ABC has been by running a whole series of pointless inquiries into uh, the impact of the ABC on competition in broadcasting. And we've seen similar things happening with the BBC in the UK with successive conservative governments over there also using funding uh, and inquiries to uh, distract and bleed out the energy from the public broadcasters by this sort of constant hostility.
1: It's Dennis Muller, a veteran New Zealand journalist now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. And he was speaking to me there after addressing a workshop in Auckland this week about legislation for a new public media entity here. Now that meeting was held under the Chatham House rule, meaning we can't say precisely what was said by whom specifically without their express permission but plenty of people at the meeting shared Dr Muller's concern about the entity's vulnerability to political influence, and among them was the events organiser, Gavin Ellis.
4: One of the things that came out of it very, very quickly was a sense that the bill has yet to be made fit for purpose. So it is possible to have independence and government funding.
1: What is the threat to the editorial independence of this new public media entity created by adopting that structure?
4: The the threat is that a an autonomous crown entity, which is what is proposed, must have regard to government policy. Okay, there is a guarantee of editorial independence in the bill. Uh, I think that that guarantee is less than watertight. And there are many, many ways in which influence can be uh, exerted. I, I don't believe that uh, it's proper or appropriate for a public media entity that is to gain and retain the trust of the public to have any possibility of government interference or influence. Now, I'm not concerned about today's government. I'm not concerned about uh, Willie Jackson's tenure as, as uh, communications minister. I think he's doing a good job. I'm not concerned necessarily about the next government if there's a change of party. What I'm concerned about is a piece of legislation that may be around for 25 or 50 years, and we don't know what government we're going to have in 10 or 15 years' time. I call it the Trump factor.
1: One media executive here today said they felt this legislation and that autonomous crown entity structure and the appearance, the perception of the possibility of of interference could damage its reputation even before it begins on day one. I
4: agree entirely. It's absolutely vital that this new organisation begins with as much public trust as it can possibly generate. If there is a, a sense that it's in some way open to influence by government, then it won't have that trust. Look at the Public Interest Journalism Fund. There were suggestions that the media had been bought off by it. That's a complete nonsense, of course, but it doesn't matter because perception is everything. And trust isn't based on fact. Trust is based on perception.
1: Some legal minds commenting on the bill at the event, your first workshop, said they felt there are clear signs of haste in the bill, Uh, so uh, things that should have been better drafted. But look, it's got a charter for the organisation. can Can't Some of the problems with the organisation that were expressed in the workshop, the feeling that it didn't adequately give people a sense of what kind of output, what kind of content would be created by this organisation or why. That could be fixed by tweaking the Charter, which will, after all, be reviewed every five years, just as the one for Radio New Zealand
4: was, uh, or was supposed to be. Look, this Charter has fewer obligations and is less aspirational than the existing Radio New Zealand Charter. I mean, you are required to perform in ways that this entity will not be required to perform. Why why should the new entity have a lesser requirement on its staff and on its board?
1: What's one of the things that would that would uh, give you that concern?
4: The Radio New Zealand Charter, the first principle, an independent public service broadcaster, the public's radio company's purpose is to serve the public interest. That is not in the new charter. Secondly, freedom of thought and expression are foundations of democratic society and the public radio company, as a public service broadcaster, plays an essential role in exercising these freedoms. Why was that not simply cut and pasted?
1: Future technology, you argued, wasn't terribly well incorporated, uh, or the possibility of it, into this new charter. But how can you legislate for that if, if there are technological applications we can't even foresee for the moment? How can a bill be written that would incorporate that?
4: Well, for for starters, you don't define broadcasting the way it's defined in the Act, which is the same way it's defined in the very old, now, Broadcasting Act. In fact, I would argue that you don't use the word broadcasting. We need, in this legislation, writing that is non-prescriptive in technological terms. In other words... It allows for what we have now, but it recognises explicitly that what we have now will be very different from what we have even 10 years from now. We shouldn't get bogged down in trying to second guess what technology may be, but to ensure that we lay open the way for the adoption of whatever technologies serve the purposes of the Crown Entity. Technology is not an end to itself.
1: And this isn't all about just the new entity. The bill is drafted in such a way as it says the new entity has to coexist within a wider system where there are other producers of public interest, public good, uh, journalism and and content. Also that there are alternative funding agencies like New Zealand On Air, uh, Māori Broadcasting and so on, and they must take account of those. But The way the bill is drafted, not many people in the room (laughs) seem to know what that really meant or what obligations that really puts upon this new Aotearoa New Zealand public media entity.
4: No, that's absolutely right. And it wasn't on the basis of a lack of intelligence on the part of the people in the room. It's simply not there. It doesn't say, indeed, it doesn't say what limits there should be on these interactions because there's a possibility it has the potential to distort the market. Um, those sort of things need to be prevented um, for everybody's good, not only uh, the good of, of other media, but in a way for the good of the enterprise itself because uh, it needs to know that it is not all things to all people. A big audience means a diverse audience and, and that's all to the good. Uh, I don't mean that. What what I don't mean that they should not do that. What I mean is that they should not use the security of funding that that brings to their enterprise to have an unfair advantage in the commercial marketplace, for example.
1: But the requirement to take account of these other organisations, be they other media organisations, other uh, public agencies and funding organisations, not really clear at all what that really means, whether it means don't double up on what they're doing or commission things with them in mind.
4: No, it's not clear. Um, But that doesn't mean you don't try to do it. At the moment, Too much of this bill leaves out those things that are in the too hard basket. I mean, there is, for example, uh, virtually nothing about that relationship between its commercial, non-commercial operations beyond preserving what Radio New Zealand does now. It needs to at least give some indication on the way that the entity should act in certain circumstances.
1: Right, because if you draft a bill that gives them very tight very strongly and specifically worded obligations, that becomes a really hard yardstick to meet. And if they're being monitored by, I think, as
4: you've also pointed out, a range of different ministries could make life very difficult, give them very little room to manoeuvre. Oh, indeed. And it, it being overly prescriptive uh, will set it up to fail. Uh, and that can't be allowed to happen. Look, this new entity is an extremely good idea. I'm enthusiastic about it. I'm excited by it because it's the opportunity to set up Something for the 21st century. It's like a clean sheet of paper, if you like, to really set up the world's first for purpose digital media operation.
1: That was Gavin Ellis, former editor in chief at the New Zealand Herald and an affiliate of Co 2 the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, which this week held a workshop of media executives, experts, and lawyers to pinpoint potential problems in the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill which is currently before Parliament. And it's holding another workshop on Wednesday this coming week to suggest solutions and prepare a submission to Parliament's Economic Development, Science and Innovation Committee, which is taking public submissions on the bill until the 8th of September.
0: This is an RNZ podcast. (laughs)
1: Last week here on MediaWatch, we looked at Fire and Fury, the multimedia documentary from the Stuff Circuit team, all about the misinformation which helped to fuel the occupation of Parliament earlier this year and which ended in violent riots. And last week, Stuff also reported that some anti COVID control and pro freedom groups were also now seeking to stand candidates in upcoming local elections. And that came after the media had sounded the alarm about some places around the country where local government posts had a shortage of contenders and some spots might end up uncontested. That's not the case with the job of Mayor of Auckland. Plenty of names are still in the hat for that. But just before the recent deadline, the one who made more headlines than any other so far pulled the plug on his bid. Talking to one of his big backers, Dave Latelli, on his own Butterbean radio show on Today FM... Leo Malloy blamed the media for not showing the many layers to himself and his work. I mean, I'm, I'm clickbait. I'm rich, low-hanging fruit, and I can yeah. sell papers. So I,
7: I accept that and I understand that, but I just wish sometimes they'd give me an opportunity to be really authentic and to explain yeah. who Leo really is.
1: Now, sides of Leo Malloy that were best kept hidden were in full view in his startling encounter with the self-described volunteer journalist Guy Williams on a recent episode of his comedy current affairs show, New Zealand Today.
8: The Auckland restauranteur made headlines last month after an expletive-filled interview on comedy show New Zealand Today.
2: You're a successful businessman running one of the most popular bars in Auckland. You're giving this all up to embarrass yourself running for Auckland Mayor.
0: Do you blame Guy Williams for the bad poll result?
1: I think he's a fabulous guy. I've been supporting him. Um, I think he's been hard done by, by his nothing against Guy, but I wouldn't do it again. Now at that time, Guy Williams was criticised by some for giving Leo Malloy the oxygen of publicity and praised by others for lifting the lid on his personality, including News Hub's Patrick Gower.
6: And you should be actually proud of what you did. You made people laugh. You gave people information. And I just thought it was awesome. And I'm proud to be your friend and your colleague
2: when I watched well, it. Well, I, I appreciate you saying the kind words. Uh, thank you very much, Paddy. I, I, I
1: and in the final episode of the latest series of New Zealand Today, Guy Williams also confronted the deep roots of misinformation in New Zealand though he took a very different tone to Stuff Circuits, Fire and
2: Fury. It's been labelled one of the leading sources of anti-vax misinformation in New Zealand, famously claiming that vaccinated people are becoming magnetised. This was my chance. If I could stop the real news, I could stop the spread of one of the biggest sources of bullshit in New Zealand. It was time to go to
1: work. Now, in that episode, Guy Williams investigated a magazine called The Real News, which is on sale all over the country and carries plenty of COVID misinformation. Now, the magazine made headlines last year when around 60,000 copies of it were distributed in Auckland, many by members of Advance NZ and Voices for Freedom. And when Guy Williams tracked down the maker of the magazine it turned out to be a familiar face. This is my
2: chance to come face-to-face with the mastermind behind one of the biggest disinformation campaigns in New Zealand history. Oh, for sake, not you again. Yeah, it's me again.
1: John Eisen was spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories on paper long before COVID-19 or even social media apps were a thing. He founded Uncensored magazine way back in 2005, reprinting lurid online theories about 9-11, aliens, so-called chemtrails in the sky, actually just vapour trails from aircraft, and more recently, COVID-19. And now he's still at it with The Real News, in spite of Guy Williams' intervention. You show me one story in The Real News that doesn't stand up factually, and then I'll stop. This is called
5: Was
2: Napoleon Gay? I mean, that's not proven. There's some references in there. No, there's literally no references. Oh, I forgot. You can't just say, oh, I forgot. Why not? John Ison was
1: clearly happy to play along with Guy Williams there for the New Zealand Today show. and That interview is now on the Uncensored magazine website with the claim that all publicity is good publicity, just ask Donald Trump. So Hayden Donnell asked Guy Williams, can misinformation be confronted and overcome by journalism or even his brand of comedy, volunteer journalism?
2: Kia ora, Guy. Welcome to Media Watch. Thanks for having me. I'm a little bit... Is it good to be on this show? I don't know. This case
7: is potentially a good thing because we're talking about conspiracy Theorists and the last episode of your show NZ Today featured one of our most prominent conspiracy theorists. So I just want to ask, yeah. did your interactions with John Ison teach you anything about the misinformation landscape in New Zealand?
2: No, my theory is, and I could be wrong, that John is a little bit different to the misinformation people we know about now. I could be wrong. I think he's a little bit separate from like, the ones that have become very prominent. A lot of these conspiracy theorists I've talked to, they genuinely believe what they're saying. So often in, in media, I think it's broken down into like a, a good versus evil. There's someone there who, you know, like kind of a, a Donald Trump figure who's being funded by the Cooch brothers or something like that. And there's some sort of like plan going on. You know, I, don't, I think John Ison is just a genuine New Zealander or an American immigrant to New Zealand who is trying to expose the truth. That's his goal. And in my opinion, he's very um, misguided in that way.
7: You have been trying now for four years because you had him on your show four years ago yeah to turn him around it's obviously proved not just <laughs> unsuccessful but almost counterproductive.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know I don't know if I was trying to do that. I was just trying to meet him the first time I met him but yeah yeah I was try. I, I, I occasionally do think yeah I can talk some sense into people or at least talk to them around to my perspective yeah. Are you discouraged in that respect? No I mean I may, maybe a little bit. Because there's, there's so many times where I'm like, oh, the solution to this is obvious. People And it, occasionally on New Zealand today, people do hear my opinion. Like, I was amazed when I, I went to Christchurch to talk about the Crusaders, in my opinion, having a terrible name for a Canterbury rugby team. And I talked to everyone on the street, and they're like, I don't think, do you think the Crusaders should change their name? And they're like, no. And I was like, do you know a little bit about the name Crusaders and where that comes from? And as soon as I explained it to them, 90% of the people, besides the dudes I interviewed who claimed to be on ketamine, 90% of people interviewed instantly changed their opinion. It was, like, really amazing. But then in some of these more um, entrenched views, uh, no, I don't think I've made uh, much progress. But maybe for the viewer, I've maybe enlightened people a little bit. Maybe I haven't. I don't know.
7: We just had a documentary come out this week, Fire and Fury by Stuff Circuit. So yes. good documentary about conspiracy culture, extreme right, the anti-vax culture in New Zealand. But it kind of portrays these people as quite sinister and it's quite serious
2: yeah i do think there's people out there who have become so misguided that they are good people who are doing very harmful things and is john eisen one of those people potentially yes but i wanted to at least show that he's not some sort of evil mastermind like kind of working away behind the scenes trying to bring down democracy or something like that because I don't think he is that. I think he is someone who thinks he's doing the right thing.
7: Should we go to Leo Malloy? The dust is settled. It's over. Leo Malloy's campaign is over. How do you feel now about what's been referred to as your infamous interview with Leo Malloy?
2: It's interesting you said interview there. I thought the interview was great. I was more criticised for the story as a whole. Um, and the, the you know the fluff I put around it, platforming or something like that, and all the criticisms that I've seen. I haven't looked at all of them, and I tried to avoid them just while I was in the absolute slushing around in the in the in the shit pit. I, I will look at them at some point, I guess. But so far, I'm like most of the criticisms are fair. I think some of them maybe were a little bit harsh. I definitely did underestimate the situation. I did this interview a long time ago, and I I did not think Leo Malloy was a serious candidate, and I did not. Uh, think that he would be the biggest name in the running. When I interviewed him, it was assumed I assumed that Phil Goff was going to be ranked. There was rumors he was going to retire, but I did not know about that. And I assumed if he was going to retire there would be another big wig from National or Labour who would, you know, a conventional politician who would be the front runner and I did not realise that Leo was going to be as successful as he was. So I kind of thought I was doing a fringe New Zealand story and then Yeah, as time went on, maybe it became less than fringe. Maybe I became out of my depth. I'm not sure. I I was happy with it and I was proud of what I put out, but um, I understand the criticisms. Would you have done it
7: differently if you'd known who's polling it sort of like
2: second in the race? Yeah, yeah, I might have. And to be honest, a lot of people, but even when I did it, we all knew who Leo Malloy was. Everyone told me not to do it from friends to uh, my bosses, producers. I had to fight to get this story across the line because I was like, this is, uh, you know. the story is in my wheelhouse as you would say and the other thing is a weird like side pressure that I was feeling is that you know one of the criticisms I have of my show myself is that too often it deals with like uh, people who are maybe like not so rich or not so privileged and so I was looking for more stories that were maybe Auckland based or people who were um, rich or well educated and so Leo Malloy kind of fit the bill perfectly for the kind of story that I was looking for at the time so I maybe looked past you know the the other ramifications, you know, yeah, because the criticism at the time, right, is the
7: comparison to kind of Jimmy Fallon tussling, tussling yeah. yeah, Donald Trump's here during that campaign, you know, kind of humanizing a figure that has some pretty inhumane pus- positions, yeah. And I, I don't think that Leo Malloy is quite on the level of Donald Trump, but do making a joke out of a guy that was at the time, I think, taking some positions like that he would spray beggars on the side of Queen Street with water to, yeah. to get them to move away.
2: Yeah, he ha- he did not said that, but he'd said other things. I mean, this was after he'd uh, made homophobic jokes about Family Bar on K Road and stuff like that, so I can't deny that I wasn't uh, interviewing like a, a controversial figure. It was my view that I... I don't know if being on New Zealand today is a good thing or a bad thing. It's a bit like me coming on Media Watch, you know? Like, it's
7: a risky proposition. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not like you went in like Jimmy
7: Fallon and went, ha, 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 Donald Trump, ha, ha, yeah. ha, Leo Molloy. Yeah. You did
2: say you're an idiot and you should pull out of the race. But I just don't think Leo Malloy. I think he has characteristics that are OK. I think he has the ability to learn. I think um, when I spoke to him about the um, homophobic remarks, I think he genuinely seemed to learn from... that. Maybe he's just politically pandering to me off-camera... I think he genuinely was regretful for the things he said. I think he has the ability. He's not one of these Trumpian figures. Because that's what we've found, is we've got this new brand of politicians that don't have the ability to experience shame or to um, apologise for what they've done. I think Leo Malloy does. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he was pulling the wool over my eyes or something like that. But I I, I thought genuinely um, uh, I wanted to discourage him for running because he'd embarrass himself. And maybe maybe my interview was the embarrassing thing. I'm not sure.
7: He has pulled out of the Merrill race. Yeah. And in his announcement saying why he did it, he said, I wouldn't do Guy Williams again. So do you feel after all the criticism that
2: <laughs> You're real you're really flattering me there. Um, I don't I know where you're going. I, I don't think it is a huge triumph for me or redemption for me. Like I think all the criticism of me are uh, like fair and still stand. Is what does it say about our level
7: of coverage of local politics? Yeah. That your joke interview uh, in a comedy show, was seen as potentially a, an election-defining
2: moment? Uh, I think the state of local democracy reporting is probably dire. Um, I think the state of journalism in New Zealand is probably dire. I've had friends and other people and journalists tell me otherwise. But my view of it, from starting at, uh, in the media in Auckland 10, 11 years ago, is that things have gone drastically downhill. All the journalists have been fired. Ironically, me being a um, pretend journalist is still there. Is that a good sign of our society? No. (laughs) I think my show's good, but I think um, we need to fund journalism somehow. Uh, Yeah, I very much worry. I'm obsessed with this. I feel like all the journalists have been fired. Half of them become real estate agents. The other half have become publicity people who are obscuring the truth. It's like we've got more people now who are like trying to hide the truth and trying to spin the truth than actually trying to find the truth, which I think is dire. I mean, we're getting into the weeds here. I could talk about this for hours, but I'm obsessed with that topic. It's a
7: problem for us as well because there's less people to watch. But <laughs> yeah. as You guys are the only two journalists left and there's no yeah, one else to just watch. Be That's why you're a comedian now, we're yeah. Just be me watching Colin. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a comedian, does it feel like a massive burden to be actually charged with shaping real-world events and people looking at you like no, you're an actual journalist.
2: No, I'm not charged with that. Uh, I've just taken that responsibility, and people would say I've overspec- overstepped my ground. I like the stories I do, and I'm proud of most of what I put out, but I definitely I make a lot of mistakes, and I'm not a journalist. What is terrifying is the number of people who come up to me and say, um, oh, my God, uh, my grandparents watched your show and now they don't trust the news any more because I'm in a suit and because I've got a microphone. The number of people who call me a journalist, when I think it's obvious I'm a comedian, it's my whole history has been a comedian, but some people don't see me as that way. And that's very difficult. And then, of course, I appear on shows like The Project, which obviously blur the lines between they, they feature journalists, they feature comedians. I don't know. You get the situation like this where I accidentally am part of real news stories and then... Yeah, it's troublesome. There's been number of people. I, 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 uh, uh, the journalist Paddy Gower uh, t- told me the other day that he was making small talk with some person in a car he was driving with and the person said his favourite journalist was me. And I was like, oh, <laughs> society's in trouble. Joe Rogan's the number one podcast and I'm uh, a journalist in New Zealand now. We're, um, we're doomed, guys. We're doomed.
7: Having said that, you tell stories on the show that maybe don't get told and maybe you reveal things about people that don't get revealed otherwise Yeah. just because you're not bound by journalistic conventions like objectivity, neutrality, and you don't sort of come from this highfalutin place talking down to people. Yeah. Do you think that that says something about our media coverage, about who we exclude,
2: about who we platform? Massively. The New Zealand... um media bubble is ridiculous. It's all in central Auckland, basically. There's about three people in Wellington, and there's about one person in Christchurch, and they're making children's TV, largely. And the rest of us are all in central Auckland, and we're trying to cover the whole country, and it's not working out, in my opinion. And I think there's two New Zealands, and our entire media um, culture, which is all white you know, largely male, a few female people, but, like, and middle-class to richer people is not showing, like, what the real New Zealand is. And I think New Zealand today, to blow my own horn here, I'm practising my horn blowing, um, does show a, a side of New Zealand culture that is not shown enough. Whether it shows it properly, whether it does a good job of that, who knows? But, like, I think, um, yeah, there's, 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 there's parts of New Zealand that I'm lucky to be able to access that, um, you know, underfunded journalists maybe cannot...
7: Guy, at the beginning of your show, you call yourself a volunteer journalist. You say you always wanted to be a journalist and it's meant to be a joke. Mm. Are you looking down on us or is there
2: some glimmer of truth there? Do you actually envy her? A little bit. Um, I, I don't think I've always wanted to be a journalist, but I just like in my stand-up comedy, I want to itch scratches that I think annoy me. And so that is a through line of New Zealand today. Like I, A lot of the stories are chosen by me. So... That's where it comes from, and, like, really, I should become a proper journalist and actually get to the truth as opposed to just make jokes and, you know, like, maybe I'm going about it the wrong way, but that is a satisfying and uh, awesome privilege that I have. Yeah, I'm jealous of journalists.
1: Hayden Donnell talking there to Guy Williams, the star of New Zealand Today, which recently finished its third series on three, including that headline-making encounter with the headline-making Auckland Merrill hopeful Leo Malloy before he pulled out of the contest. That's still available along with Series 1 and 2 on the on-demand platform 3Now. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, earlier this month we spoke to Today FM host Lloyd Burr about his podcast series on the Labour Party's years in the wilderness. And for that he approached all the party's leaders since Helen Clark stood down in the wake of election defeat back in 2008. And while Andrew Little fronted up for the series, his predecessors all declined. And his successor, Jacinda Ardern,
2: didn't even get back to him. I didn't get a response at all from Ardern or from David Shearer, so... Yeah, maybe just cathartic for Andrew Little.
1: Last week, Lloyd Burr's fellow Today FM host Tova O'Brien came back from Ukraine with her exclusive interview with President Volodymyr Zelensky, part of a TV documentary that screened on Prime this week. And in it, Tova O'Brien told President Zelensky she'd tried to get Jacinda Ardern to visit him in the Ukraine as well.
0: I think, I think she said, yes, she will, she, will, when, when she, she, will, she will. We'll keep asking her for you.
1: But on Today FM, Tova O'Brien told her listeners she'd had no luck with the PM on that so far.
0: We're starting to think that getting an interview with the Ukrainian president's easier than convincing our own Prime Minister to speak with us here at Today FM. Jacinda Ardern is so far refusing our requests to discuss Volodymyr Zelensky's pleas for New Zealand. But
1: Tova O'Brien and Lloyd Burr aren't the only ones at Today FM who've been rebuffed by the Prime Minister lately. Recently, nighttime host Polly Gillespie told her listeners that she'd asked for a one-hour-long session with Jacinda Ardern.
8: Have faith that uh, Jacinda will return your your, your text message. Well, that was... it's been nine days.
1: Now, it turns out the Prime Minister was in Samoa at the time, but later that night, Polly Gillespie read out the invitation she'd sent to the PM with a soundtrack.
8: Hi, Jacinda. Polly Gillespie here. Socialist, mother, grandmother host of Today FM's non-political evening show. I'm aware that asking for an hour of your time in my tiny Wellington studio is rather unrealistic. Yes, my wee studio, where the only other person in the building at night is a lovely Korean cleaner. This is far too long for a text message, isn't it, Jacinda? I really like you. After a full
1: minute, Polly Gillespie was still going.
8: I have no expectations. Is this too stalky? I've learned that always the best way forward, but gosh, I hope it happens. I promise I would never put to air anything you were in any way uncomfortable with. If any of this seems. And I'd after almost idea. another
1: minute, that text invite finally ended up like this.
8: Sometimes one must take a shot and produce world's longest text message ever. Kindest regards and with fingers crossed, Polly.
1: Almost the textbook definition there of a text that was T L D R.
8: Was it weird? Um. No, be honest. Don't be radio. Just be honest. Yes. It was weird. Yeah, it was a bit much. In what way? Too long? Too, too, Too much information?
1: Too long, I think. And while we don't know if Jacinda Ardern ever really did read that text, Polly Gillespie eventually got the message there from her own producer. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.